Chapter Two of the Four Faces by William Lequeux. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. Chapter Two, The Angel Faces. Hugesson Gastrell had accepted Lord Easterton's invitation to dine at the club, and the three men were seated near the fire as I entered. Easterton and Jack Osborne on one of the large settees, their visitor facing them in an armchair with his back to me. I went towards them across the big room, apologizing for my unpunctuality, for I was nearly ten minutes late. To my surprise they remained silent. Even Easterton did not rise or greet me in any way. He looked strangely serious, and so did Jack, as a rule the cheeriest of mortals. "'I am dreadfully sorry for being so late,' I exclaimed, thinking that my unpunctuality must have given them offence. I was about to invent some elaborate excuse to account for my delay when the man seated with his back to me suddenly rose and, turning abruptly, faced me. I recognized him at once. It was Gastrell, whom I had met at the Hotel Metropole in Geneva. As he stood there before me, with his back half turned to the light of the big bay window, there could be no mistaking him. Again I was struck by his remarkable appearance, the determined clean-cut features, the straight, short nose, the broad forehead, the square-shaped chin denoting rigid strength of purpose. Once more I noticed the cleft in his chin. It was quite deep. His thick hair was dark, with a slight kink in it behind the ears. But perhaps the strangest, most arresting thing about Gastrell's face was his eyes daring eyes of a bright light blue such as one sees in some canadians the bold almost hard eyes of a man who was accustomed to gazing across far distances of sunlit snow who habitually looks up into vast pale blue skies one might have imagined that his eyes had caught their shade he wore upon his watch-chain a small gold medallion a trinket which had attracted my attention before it was about the size of a sovereign and embossed upon it were several heads of chubby cupids, four sweet little faces. At first glance at him a woman might have said mentally, What nice eyes! At the second she would probably have noticed a strange thing. The eyes were quite opaque. They seemed to stare rather than look at you. There was no depth whatever in them. Certainly there was no guessing at Gastrell's character from his eyes. You could take it or leave it, as you pleased, for the eyes gave you no help. The glance was perfectly direct, bright and piercing, but there could be absolutely no telling if the men when speaking were lying to you or not. The hard blue eyes never changed, never deepened, nor was there any emotion in them. To sum up, the effect the man's personality produced was that of an extraordinarily strong character carving its way undaunted through every obstacle to its purpose. But whether the trend of that character were likely to lean to the side of truth or goodness, or to that of lying and villainy, there was no guessing. All these points I observed again. I say again, for they had struck me forcibly the first time I had met him in Geneva, as he stood there facing me, his gaze riveted on mine. We must have stayed thus staring at each other for several moments before anybody spoke. Then it was Lord Easterton who broke the silence. Well, he asked. I glanced at him quickly, uncertain which of us he had addressed. After some instant's pause he repeated, "'Well?' "'Are you speaking to me?' I asked quickly. "'Of course,' he replied, almost sharply. "'You don't seem to know each other, after all.' "'Oh, but yes,' I exclaimed. 
and I turned quickly to Gastrell, instinctively extending my hand to him as I did so. We met in Geneva. He still stood looking at me, motionless. Then gradually an expression, partly of surprise, partly of amusement, crept into his eyes. "'You mistake me for someone else, I am afraid,' he said, and his voice was the voice of the man I had met in Geneva. That I would have sworn to in any court of law. It is rather remarkable, he went on, the eyes still set on mine, that Mr. Osborne, to whom Lord Easterton has just introduced me, also thought he and I had met before. But I am certain I did meet you, Osborne exclaimed in a curious tone from where he sat. I am quite positive we were together on board the Masonic, unless you have a twin brother, and even then. He stopped gazing literally open-mouthed at Hugesson Gastrell, while I, standing staring at the man, wondered if this were some curious dream from which I should presently awaken, for there could be no two questions about it. The man before me was the Gastrell I had met in Geneva, and conversed with on one or two occasions for quite a long time. Besides, he wore the little medallion of the four faces. Easterton looked ill at ease. So did Osborne and certainly I felt considerably perturbed. It was unnatural, uncanny, this resemblance, and the resemblance as well as the name must, it would seem, be shared by three men at least. For here was Lord Easterton's friend, Hugesson Gastrell, whom Easterton had told us he had met frequently in London during the past month. Here was Jack Osborne, claiming to be acquainted with a man named Gastrell, whom he had met on his way home from Africa and who, as he put it to us afterwards, was the dead facsimile of Easterton's guest. And here was I with a distinct recollection of a man called Gastrell who, well, the more I stared at Easterton's guest, the more mystified I felt at this Hugesson Gastrell's declaring that he was not my Geneva companion, indeed that we had never met before, and that he had never been in Geneva. The dinner was not a great success. Gastrell talked at considerable length on all sorts of subjects, talked, too, in a most interesting and sometimes very amusing way, yet all the time the thought that was in Osborne's mind was in my mind also. It was impossible, he was thinking, that this man seated at dinner with us could be other than the individual he had met on board ship. It was impossible, I was thinking, that this man seated at dinner with us could be other than the individual I had met in Geneva. Easterton, a great talker in the club, was particularly silent. He, too, was puzzled. Worse than that, I felt, I could see, anxious and uncomfortable. He had let his house to this man, the lease was already signed, and now his tenant seemed to be, in some sense, a man of mystery. We sat in the big room with the bay window, after dinner, until about half-past ten, when Gastrell said he must be going. During the whole time he had been with us, he had kept us entertained by his interesting conversation, full of quaint reminiscence and touched with flashes of humour. "'I hope we shall see a great deal of each other when I am settled in Cumberland Place,' he said, as he prepared to leave. The remark, though spoken to Easterton, had been addressed to us all, and we made some conventional reply in acknowledgment. "'And if later I decide to join this club,' he said presently, "'you won't mind proposing me, will you, Easterton?' "'I, er, of course, not in the least.' Easterton answered awkwardly, taken off his guard. "'But it will take you a good time to get in, you know,' he added as an afterthought, 
hopeful that the prospect of delay might cause Gastrell to change his mind. Two, even three years, some men have to wait. That won't matter, Gastrell said carelessly, as the hall porter helped him on with his coat. I can join some other club meanwhile, though I draw the line at pothouses. Well, good night to you all, and you must all come to my housewarming. A sort of reception I'm going to give. I ought to be settled into the house in a month, and I hope, he added lightly, addressing Jack Osborne and myself, you won't run across any more of my doubles. I don't like the thought of being mistaken for other men. The door of the taxi shut with a bang. In the hall, where the tape machines were busy, Osborne and I stood looking at each other thoughtfully. Presently Osborne spoke. "'What do you make of it?' he asked abruptly. "'I am as certain that is the fellow who was with me on board ship as I am that I am standing here.' "'And I am equally positive,' I answered. "'He's the man I met in Geneva. It's impossible there could be two individuals so absolutely identical. I tell you it's not possible.' Osborne paused for some moments, thinking. "'Barrington!' he said suddenly. "'Yes, what?' I asked, taken aback at his change of tone. He took a step forward and laid his hand upon my shoulder. "'Barrington,' he repeated, and in his eyes there was a singular expression. "'I have an idea.' He turned to a page who was standing near. "'Boy,' he said sharply, "'what address did that gentleman who has just gone tell you to give to his driver?' "'He told the driver himself, sir,' the boy answered. "'But I heard the address he gave, sir.' What was it? 340 Maresfield Gardens, sir. It's near Swiss Cottage, up Fitzjohn's Avenue on the right. Osborne turned to me quickly. Come into this room, he said. There is something I want to ask you. The place is empty and we shall not be disturbed. When he had closed the door and glanced about him to make sure that we were alone, he said in a low voice, Look here, Mike. I tell you again, I have an idea. I wonder if you will fall in with it. I have watched that fellow Gastrell pretty closely all the evening. I am a rather good judge of men, you know, and I believe him to be an impostor of some kind. I can't say just yet of what kind. Anyway, he is the man I met on the Masonic. He can deny it as much as he likes. He is. Either he is impersonating some other man, or some other man is impersonating him. Now listen. I am going to that address in Maresfield Gardens that he gave to his taxi driver. I am going to find out if he lives there or what he is doing there. What I want to know is, will you come with me? Good heavens, Jack, I exclaimed. What an extraordinary thing to do. But what will you say when you get there? Supposing he does live there, or, for that matter, supposing he doesn't, what reason will you give for calling at the house? Oh, I'll invent some reason quick enough, but I want someone to be with me. Will you come? Will you or won't you? I glanced up at the clock. It wanted twenty minutes to eleven. Do you mean now? Do you intend to go at this time of the night? I intend to go at once, as fast as a taxi will take me there, he answered. I paused undecided. It seemed such a strange thing to do under the circumstances, but then as I knew Jack Osborne had always been fond of doing strange things. Though a member of Brooks's, he was unconventional in the extreme. Yes, I will, I said, the originality of the idea suddenly appealing to me. In point of fact, I, too, mistrusted this man Gastrell. Though he had looked me so straight in the eyes when, two hours before, he had calmly assured me that I was mistaken in believing him to be his namesake in Geneva, as he put it. 
Still, as I say, I felt convinced he was the same man. Good, Osborne answered in a tone of satisfaction. Come, we will start at once. A strange feeling of repressed excitement obsessed me as our taxi passed up Bond Street, turned into Oxford Street, then to the right into Orchard Street, and sped thence by way of Baker Street past Lord's Cricket Ground and up the Finchley Road. What would happen when we reached Marsfield Gardens? Would the door be opened by a stolid footman or by some frigid maidservant who would coldly inform us that Mr. Gastrell was not at home, or should we be shown in, and, if we were shown in, what excuse would Jack Osborne make for calling so late at night? I cannot say that I felt in the least anxious, however, for Osborne is a man who has knocked about the world and seen many queer sides of life, and who never, under any circumstances, is at a loss how to act. I glanced at my watch as our taxi turned into Marsfield Gardens. It was ten minutes past eleven. At the house indicated halfway up the hill, the taxi suddenly pulled up. Osborne got out and pressed the electric bell push. As I looked up at the windows, I noticed that nowhere was any light visible, nor was there a light in the ground-floor windows. I believe everybody is in bed, I said to him, when the bell remained unanswered. Without replying, he pressed the push again and kept his finger on it. Still no one came. We'd better call tomorrow, I suggested, when he had rung a third time with the same result. The words had hardly left my lips when we heard the door chain rattle. Then the bolts were pulled back, and a moment later the door was carefully drawn open to the length of its chain. Inside all was darkness, nor was anybody visible. "'What do you want?' a woman's voice inquired. The voice had a most pleasant timbre, also the speaker was obviously a lady. She did not sound in the least alarm, but there was a note of surprise in the tone. "'Has Mr. Gastrell come home yet?' Osborne asked. "'Not yet. Do you want to see him?' Yes, he dined at Brooks's club this evening with Lord Easterton. Soon after he had left, a purse was found, and, as nobody in the club claimed it, I concluded that it must be his, so I have brought it back. That is really very good of you, Mr. Osborne, the hidden speaker answered. If you will wait a moment, I will let you in. Are you alone? No, I have a friend with me, but who are you? How do you know my name? There was no answer. The door was shut quietly then we heard the sound of the chain being removed. By the time Jack Osborne had paid our driver and dismissed the taxi, the door had been opened sufficiently wide to admit us. We entered, and at once the door was shut. We were now in inky blackness. "'Won't you switch on the light?' Osborne asked, when a minute or so had elapsed, and we remained in total darkness. Nobody answered, and we waited, wondering. Fully another minute passed, and still we stood there. I felt Osborne touch me. Then, coming close to me, he whispered in my ear, "'Strike a match, Mike. I haven't one.' I felt in my pockets. I had not one either. I was about to tell him so when something clicked behind us, and the hall was flooded with light. Never before had I beheld, and I doubt if I shall ever behold again, a woman as lovely as the tall, graceful being upon whom our eyes rested at that instant. In height quite five foot nine, as she stood there beneath the glow of the electrolier in the luxurious hall in her dinner dress, the snowy slope of the shoulders and the deep curved breast, strong yet also softly delicately rounded, gleamed like rosy alabaster in the reflection from the red-shaded light above her. 
our eyes wandered from exquisite figure to exquisite face, and there was no sense of disappointment, for the face was as nearly perfect as a woman's may be upon this earth of imperfections. The uplift of the brow, the curve of the cheek to the rounded chin, the noble sweep of delicate dark eyebrows were extraordinarily beautiful. Her hair was a net for the sunlight, its color that of a new chestnut in the spring when the sun shines hotly upon it, making it glow and shimmer and glisten with red and yellow and deepest browns. Now it was drawn about her head in shining twists, and across the front and rather low down on the brow was a slim and delicate wreath of roses and foliage in very small diamonds beautifully set in platinum. The gleam of the diamonds against the red-brown of the wonderful hair was an effect impossible to describe, yet one felt that the hair would have been the same miracle without it. "'Mrs. Gastrell, why, I didn't recognize your voice,' I had heard Osborne exclaim in a tone of amazement just after the light had been turned on. But my attention had been so centered upon the vision standing there before us that I had hardly noticed the remark or the emphasis with which it was uttered. I suppose half a minute must have passed before anybody spoke again, and then it was the woman who broke the silence. "'Will you show me the purse?' she asked, holding out her hand for it and addressing Osborne. On the instant he produced his own and gave it to her. She glanced at it, then handed it back. "'It is not his,' she said quietly. Her gaze rested steadily upon Osborne's face for some moments. Then she said, "'How exceedingly kind of you to come all this way!' and in the middle of the night, just to find out if a purse picked up at your club happens to belong to the guest of a friend of ours. In her low, soft voice there was a touch of irony, almost of mockery. Looking at her now, I felt puzzled. Was she what she appeared to be, or was this amazing beauty of hers a cloak, a weapon, if you will, perhaps the most dangerous weapon of a clever, scheming woman? Easterton had told us that Gastrell was a bachelor. Gastrell had declared that he had never before met either Jack Osborne or myself. Yet here at the address that Gastrell had given to the taxi driver was the very woman the man calling himself Gastrell, with whom Osborne had returned from Africa, had passed off as his wife. "'My husband isn't in at present,' she said calmly a moment later. "'But I expect him back at any minute. Won't you come in and wait for him?' Before either of us could answer she had walked across the hall, unlocked and opened a door, and switched on the light in the room. Mechanically we followed her. As we entered, a strange, heavy perfume of some subtle eastern scent struck my nostrils. I had noticed it in the hall, but in this room it was pungent, oppressive, even overpowering. The apartment, I noticed, was luxuriously furnished. What chiefly attracted my attention, however, were the pictures on the walls beautifully executed, the subjects were, to say the least, peculiar. The fire in the grate still burned brightly. Upon a table were two siphons in silver stands, also decanters containing spirits and several tumblers. Some of the tumblers had been used. As I sank some moments later into an easy chair, I felt that its leather-covered arms were warm, as if someone had just vacated it. And yet the door of this room had been locked. Also, when we had arrived, no light had been visible in any of the windows of the house, and the front door had been chained and bolted. "'Make yourselves quite at home,' our beautiful hostess said, and, as she spoke, she placed a box of cigars, newly opened, upon the table at my elbow. "'I am sorry,' she added, "'that I must leave you now.' 
there was a curious expression in her eyes as she smiled down at us, an expression that later I came to know too well. Then turning, she swept gracefully out of the room, closing the door behind her. I looked across at Osborne. For some moments neither of us spoke. The mysterious house was still as death. "'Well, Jack,' I said lightly, though somehow I felt uneasy, "'what do you make of it, old man?' "'It's just as I thought,' he answered, taking a cigar out of the box and beginning to trim it. "'How do you mean, just as you thought?' I asked, puzzled. "'Gastrell is an impostor, and, and that isn't his wife.' He did not speak again for some moments, being busily occupied in lighting his long cigar. Presently he leaned back, then blew a great cloud of smoke towards the ceiling. Suddenly we heard a click like the wooden lid of a box suddenly shut. "'Hello!' he exclaimed suddenly. "'What's that?' "'What's what?' "'Why, look!' he gasped. His gaze was set upon something in the shadow of a small table in a corner of the room, something on the floor. In silence now we both stood staring at it, for Osborne had risen suddenly. Slowly it moved. It was gradually gliding along the floor, with a sound like paper being pushed along a carpet. Whence it came, where it began, and where it ended we could not see, for the shadow it was in was very deep, nor was its color in the least discernible. All we could make out was that some long, sinuous, apparently endless thing was passing along the room, close to the wall farthest from us, coming from under the sofa, and disappearing beneath the table. All at once Osborne sprang towards me with an exclamation of alarm, and I felt his grip tighten upon my arm. "'Good God!' he cried. An instant later a broad, flat head slowly reared itself from beneath the red table-cover which hung down almost to the floor, rose higher and higher until the black, beady, merciless eyes were set upon mine, and in that brief instant of supreme suspense my attention became riveted on the strange, slate-gray mark between and just behind the reptile's cruel eyes. Then, as its head suddenly shot back, Osborne dashed towards the door. Once, twice, three times he pulled frantically at the handle with all his force. "'Good God! Barrington!' he cried, his face blanched to the lips. "'We're locked in!' Almost as he spoke, the serpent with head extended swept forward towards us along the floor. I held my breath. Escape from its venomous fangs was impossible. We had been trapped. End of chapter 2 Recording by Tom Weiss Tom's Audiobooks.com